This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Friday. We are finishing up infectious disease. Daphne, how are you? I'm good. It's been a it's been a long run, hasn't it? It's been a it's been a stint for sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, what are we doing moving, today? We're moving right along. I'm going to start with um, fungal infections, okay? Okay. So, um, the epidemiology uh, of, of really fungal infections is that Canda albicans um, is still the most uh, common type, both of all the fungal infections, but also the candidal fungal infections. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to start with Candida specifically. Infants born less than 1,000 grams are at greatest risk for invasive candidal infection. Mm-hmm. The clinical presentations can be oral uh, thrush, which is the most common. It's that white patch over the oral mucosa that cannot be scraped off. And underneath, there can be found an erythematous base, which may become pustular. They may have an erythematous vesicular papular rash with satellite lesions located in the groin buttock regions, but can also involve the neck and the axilla. And, you know, we think, oh, this is just, you know, those folds or diaper uh, dermatitis, Um, but it does increase the risk of systemic candida. Congenital cutaneous candidiasis is rare, um, but a severe complication uh, presents at birth or within a few hours after birth because of intrauterine ascending infection. And the risk factors include a maternal foreign body in the uterus or cervix, preterm birth, maternal history of vaginal candidiasis. And at birth, they may have an erythematous generalized maculopapular rash that can become pustular Mm-hmm. Um, and can involve the palms and soles. And they may uh, be accompanied by respiratory symptoms. If there's just isolated skin lesions, then you can treat locally. So this is not a systemic candidal infection. It's just a congenital cutaneous candidiasis. That's in contrast to systemic candidiasis, um, which the biggest risk factor for is anti- is prolonged antibiotic treatment. What happens is there's uh, candidal GI overgrowth. Um, the other risk factors include prematurity, being very low birth weight, prolonged central venous catheter use, prolonged intubation, and uses of use of cordless steroids. They can have respiratory symptoms, feeding intolerance, temperature instability, hypotension, hyperglycemia. This usually presents about five weeks of age, but again, depends on all of those other features. Can lead to meningitis, brain abscess, fungal, renal masses, arthritis, otitis media, endophthalmus, and endocarditis. So the presentation is like all of the other <laughs> causes of sepsis, so you have to have a really high um, index of suspicion. The diagnosis is clinical if it's thrush. Um, you can see uh, yeast cells and pseudohyphae and candidal albicans infected tissue. You can do uh, blood, CSF, and urine cultures. And if there's candidemia, you should also obtain a renal ultrasound and or CT. You should get head imaging, echocardiogram, and an, an ophthalmological exam to look for extension into those tissues. 
If there's invasive candidiasis, central catheters um, should be removed and you treat for two weeks. Um, you can treat uh, with, for, for thrush, you can use the oral suspension of nystatin. You can also use a 1% gen, uh, I, I never know how to say this, gen, gentian violet, gentian violet. The, the purple stuff. <laughs> and you can nystatin ointment for skin infections. For more serious infections, you can use amphotericin B, which disrupts the fungal cell wall synthesis by binding to sterols. It has CSF penetration ranging between 40 and 90% of plasma levels, and it is the first-line therapy for systemic candidiasis in neonates. But if there's CSF involvement, a second agent, usually uh, flucytosine, is usually recommended as well. Amphotericin can lead to nephrotoxicity, which it's related to the total dose. It can lead to seizures, hypokalemia, low magnesium, hepatotoxicity, hepatotoxicity arrhythmia, and bone marrow suppression. Fluconazole is another option. It inhibits the production of the major component of the fungal cell membrane and has been used to treat systemic candidiasis, candidiasis but is not recommended as the only drug until the sensitivities are known because some candidal species are resistant to fluconazole. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a liposomal amphotericin B, um, which uh, can be preferred. <laughs> it's sometimes hard to get. You remember how well, we, tried to, <laughs> we tried to get that in there? <laughs> That's why Ben's chuckling. Um, because uh, the good things about it are there's less nephrotoxicity compared with amphotericin B, the non-liposomal form. It can be used for invasive disease in a neonate if there's no sign of urinary tract involvement. And flucytosine is a nucleoside analog. It's uh, often used in combination with amphotericin B, particularly if there's CNS involvement. There's limited use as a sole agent because of rapid, develop, uh, rapid resistance. Infection control is standard. And what is the prevention? So uh, prophylaxis of neonates born less than 1,500 grams at birth showed efficacy of intravenous fluconazole times four to six weeks in preventing candida colonization and systemic infection. So it's recommended if there's a high-risk NICU patients and uh, greater than 5% of invasive candidine. Hmm. Um, I will talk a little bit about the non-candidal fungal infections. These sure. are these... Uh, OCs that you learned about in med school, aspergillosis, zygomycosis, uh, malassezia, trichosporinosis, pickyosepsis, cryptococcus, coccidiomycosis, blastomycosis, and dermatophytosis. Dermatophytosis. I nailed it. And the truth is that they are having an increasing incidence in preterm infants. So while we're not seeing them very commonly, we might see more of them. Clinically, aspergillosis presents with skin lesions, um, pneumonia, if there's inhalation of the spores, and they may have rapid systemic dissemination. There's an increased risk of thrombosis, infarction, and necrosis. We diagnose it by microscopy or culture of tissues. The characteristic skin lesion is an erythematous patch or plaque that progresses to hemorrhagic bullae and ulcerations. So not something you would, would miss on clinical exam, but something you just have to remember the buzzwords about. Zygomycosis is relatively uncommon in newborns. They can have cutaneous disease or gastrointestinal disease, similar to, similar to neck, but without the radiographic abnormalities. 
Thus, there's a high mortality rate. Vascular invasion is a hallmark with thromboses and tissue necrosis, and it's usually diagnosed by histopathology, which is not good, or culture of tissues. Treatment is local debridement or surgical resection and amphotericin C. Amphotericin B. We're really stretching our limits here. There is no, I don't think there's an amphotericin C. Maybe there is. I don't know. But the I'm answer sure. is the amphotericin B. Somebody's going to email us saying, we're working on that. I'm working on that. Malassezia. Colonizes mostly skin and respiratory tract, requires exogenous long-chain fatty acids for growth, which may explain the association of this infection in, in infants who are receiving intralipid emulsification. Mm -hmm. Clinical manifestations are nonspecific, of course. Apnea, bradycardia, fever, respiratory distress, thrombocytopenia, thrombus, and thromboembolism are complications of catheter-associated fungemia. Cryptococcal disease can lead to meningitis and disseminated fungemia with involvement of brain, meninges, eyes, liver, and spleen. It's invariably fatal without therapy, and the diagnosis is by India ink staining. Coccidiomycosis prevents a severe pulmonary disease with systemic dissemination involving brain and meninges. The treatment is an infratericin B for invasive disease and as the initial therapy. Additional agents, like we discussed, uh, flucytosine added for CNS involvement. Congratulations. Your turn. You got through it. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about immunizations. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's, that's a question. I mean, I feel like mm -hmm. there's always that question that's going to pop up, which is what about the immunization schedule? The immunization schedule, according to the CDC, um, is that babies should be vaccinated based on their chronological age. Right? It's not based on their corrected. It's based on their chronological age. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about is immunization for pregnant women. Vaccinate only if there's a high risk of disease exposure and if the infection would lead to a high risk to the fetus and neonate. That's really um, the tenets of, of maternal immunization. If vaccination is necessary, we try to delay it until the second or the third trimester to decrease the risk of teratogenicity. And the vaccines that are routinely recommended during pregnancy are the Tdap the inactivated influenza. The vaccines that are not contraindicated during pregnancy include pneumococcal, meningococcal, hepatitis B, and the inactivated poliovirus. I, I, I insist on that, inactivated. And any live virus is contraindicated during pregnancy. That includes MMR and varicella. Um, in terms of um, immunization of neonates uh, with or suspected HIV, um, you uh, you basically vaccinate them as usual. And if you have a confirmation of, of HIV infection, you would use the inactivated vaccines. Um, some of the contraindicated vaccines in babies who are suspected of having HIV, oral polio, the BCG, the, the Bacille Calmette-Guerin for the, for the TB, MMR varicella, which are live vaccines. Um, in terms of immunization of preterm infants, as we mentioned, we want to vaccinate them based on their chronological age. The vaccine dosage is the same as the one for term infant. And although studies have found that infants born at less than 1500 grams and or less than 29 weeks may have decreased immune responses to some of the vaccine, most preterm infants produce sufficient immunity from the vaccine to prevent the disease. We defer rotavirus, as you've mentioned last week, until discharge to prevent nosocomial spread. 
hepatitis B uh, vaccine. The timing is dependent on the maternal hepatitis B antigen. We spoke about that as well. The influenza vaccine is indicated in all preterm infants that are six months chronological age. And remember that for the first series, you would give a two-dose regimen. RSV prophylaxis is uh, something that we mentioned as well. And all care providers of preterm infants should check their pertussis status and get vaccine if they have not been vaccinated in the past 10 years. Some of the side effects of vaccine that have been reported include apnea in babies that are less than 1,000 grams, uh, receiving diphtheria and tetanus, toxoid, and whole blood, whole cell, sorry, pertussis vaccine. Um, this has not been found in babies who are receiving the acellular pertussis vaccine, even though the studies were small. Um, however, there's increased risk of apnea if there's a combination of Tdap, inactivated polio, hepatitis B, and HIP vaccine given to very low birth weight infant. I think that's our PUX. Preterm infants who concomitantly receive heptavalent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, the PCV7 and the DTP and hemophilus influenza vaccine, can experience benign febrile seizures more often than term infants. And that's it for immunization. Where should okay. we go next? Uh, we will talk a little bit about breastfeeding and infections. Um, this, I think, is high yield and we'll talk about it in a different section but components of breast milk targeting infections so lactoferrin is present in high amounts in breast milk it is bacteriostatic against numerous bacteria so lactoferrin uh, helps uh, prevent infections lactoperoxidase it's actually present in low amounts in breast milk and it requires hydrogen peroxide and thiocyanate cyanate for antibacterial effect. So the biggest, um, again, factor in breast milk that's helping target infections is the lactoferrin. Um, so let's talk about the risk of infection with breastfeeding. We've talked about this a little bit so far this week. Infections that can cross breast milk, CMV, HIV, hepatitis B, rubella, and HIV. Um, note, if the mother, if there's a mother with hepatitis B, um, it does, can cross into the breast milk, but there's a little risk of transmission, especially if the infant received IVG, IVIG and vaccine and thus can still breastfeed. So the true contraindications to breastfeeding in the United States, and again, um, in some other parts of the world, obviously the benefit, the the, the risk-benefit risk benefit ratio is different. So uh, the current contraindications for us in the U.S. are maternal HIV. Again, for non-U.S. locations without safe alternatives to human milk, the WHO recommends breastfeeding for at least six months. The mother should receive antiretroviral medications, and the infant should receive daily nevirapine prophylaxis until one week after breastfeeding is discontinued. Another contraindication is a mother with an HSV lesion on the breast. You can cover the affected breast and breastfeed on the non-affected breast. Uh, we talked about this. A symptomatic mother with a positive PPD and an abnormal chest X-ray or presumed active TB um, should be separated from the infant. Um, and a mother with an active breast abscess. That's different than mastitis or bloody milk. Those are not contraindications to breastfeeding. Um, relative contraindications to breastfeeding and um, CMV because of the risk of um, 
CMV acquisition through the milk. You could consider not breastfeeding if the preterm, it's a preterm, very low birth weight infant, and it's CMV seropositive mother um, because of low amounts of transplacentally acquired maternal antibodies. So those are the highest risk infants for um, breast milk associated um, CMV. Uh, you could use holder pasteurization, which is a heat treatment at 62.5 degrees centigrade times 30 minutes, which inactivates CMV and minimizes the risk. And um, many units are using the freezing protocol. So freezing milk decreases the viral titers, but it does not uh, reliably uh, eliminate CMV. Uh, another relative contraindication is HSV. Consider abstaining from breastfeeding if maternal oral HSV lesions, again, there's decreased transmission if you cover the lesions. Hepatitis C. Consider abstaining from breastfeeding if maternal hep C infection and cracked or bleeding nipples, which would increase the risk. They do talk a little bit about human milk banks. Human uh, milk banks that belong to the Human Milk Banking Association of North America follow specific CDC and FDA regulations to prevent transmission of infection via donor human milk. Um, they do this in the following ways. Screening of donors for hep B surface antigen and antibodies to HIV, hep C virus, and syphilis. Heat treatment, the holder pasteurization, which inactivates HIV and CMV, and it also eliminates or decreases most other viral titers. Um, a lack of pathogenic organism growth from bacterial cultures of pre-pasteurized milk and a lack of viable bacteria post-pasteurization. Um, okay, the last thing we wanted to cover today was strategies to prevent CLABSEs. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. I got it. I got it. I got it. Uh, in general, the most effective uh, strategy is this bundled approach, a multi-step approach, multidisciplinary involvement, um, which includes the following. Educating a multidisciplinary team about line insertion and maintenance approach, designating trained, competent providers to perform procedures, hand hygiene prior to procedures, a maximal sterile burial precautions during procedures, such as sterile drapes, mask cap and sterile gown, sterile gloves, a chlorhexidine-based scrub for a minimum of 30 seconds at the insertion site. Um, though we may not use chlorhexidine for the neonates less than 1,500 grams, where iodine-based scrubs are prefer preferred with time to allow compound, either compound to dry. Use of a catheter insertion checklist with a trained observer, uh, the trained observers to look for deviations in sterile procedure. Maintenance recommendations, which include the use of a transparent dress and over insertion site so that the insertion site can be evaluated. Evaluate the insertion site daily, changing dressing if soiled or loose. Disinfecting catheters, hubs, injection ports, using needleless connectors with alcohol swabs for a minimum of 15 seconds, followed by air drying prior to accessing the line. Evaluating the need for central line catheter daily, monitoring infection rates and adherence to approach outlined as outlined above, and participating in quality improvement collaborators, collaboratives both within and between um, institution. The most common routes of catheter contamination are the following. Um, skin organisms at the insertion site migrate into the tract created by the catheter and along the surface of the catheter. 
And colonization continued to the tip of the catheter. This is the most common route of catheter contamination. There can be direct contamination of catheter or hub. There can be hematogenous seed from another infected site. Uh, and there can be contaminated fluid entering the catheter. Congratulations. Congratulations. We did it. I do have one question for you as we finish uh, out the week. This is actually endocrinology question 31. <laughs> a male infant is born at 26 weeks gestation at 12 hours of age. His blood culture that had been sent on admission is positive for candida albicans. After discussing the case with infectious disease, the team orders liposomal amphotericin B, not amphotericin C. At three days of age, the infant has a spontaneous intestinal perforation. A Penrose drain is placed to manage the perforation, and two days later, the infant has a seizure. The serum, potassium, glucose, and calcium concentrations are all within the normal range. Of the following, the electrolyte of the following, the electrolyte or mineral that is most likely responsible for this infant seizure is chloride, dum, dum. magnesium, phosphorus, sodium. Or zinc. Okay. This is a hard question, but we did cover it. Yeah. The, the which kind of infotericin B? The liposomal infotericin B. Yeah. That doesn't help you in this question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna say magnesium. That's right. Um, amphotericin B administration is known to lead to hypomagnesemia. It can also lead to hypokalemia, but that was not one of the answers. That's the one I was... Uh, okay, <laughs> That's right. Um, other etiologies of hypomagnesemia include the following. Maternal illness such as diabetes or preeclampsia, growth restricted fetus, prematurity, malabsorption, chronic diarrhea, liver disease, or perinatal depression. Clinical manifestations include irritability, tremors, muscle weakness, and seizures. So um, amphotericin B can cause seizures itself, <laughs> but it leads to these electrolyte derangements, hypomagnesemia and hypokalemia, which need to be monitored throughout the course of treatment. All right, buddy. We did it. We did it. <laughs> I'll see you Sunday for Journal Club. Sounds good. Bye, everybody. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.